Hey everyone, this is Alex and welcome to episode four of season two of Raw Talk Podcast. We're going to jump straight in today because we have a lot of great content lined up for you. Our guest of honor this week is Dr. Sharmista Mishra, an infectious disease physician and scientist at St. Michael's Hospital and the Lee Cushing Knowledge Institute in Toronto. Dr. Mishra's research involves using mathematical modeling to explain and sometimes even predict the spread of various infectious diseases with a particular focus on sexually transmitted infections, STIs. Her work takes her all over the world, working with various other types of physicians and modelers, but she also has collaborations with policymakers, anthropologists, social scientists, as well as community researchers and care providers. We had a great discussion about her work and her field more generally, and I walked away from my meeting with Dr. Mishra genuinely believing in the magic of mathematics. <laughs> I think this is going to be a great episode, and if you agree with me once you've listened to it, please show your support slash find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook using the at Raw Talk podcast handle. Okay, that's enough from me. Let's meet Dr. Mishra. here in Sharmista's office at uh, the St. Michael's Hospital. And um, I just want to start off before we jump in describing this amazing wall that she has in her office. It's a wall made out of whiteboard material and she has all kinds of cool mathematical symbols and formulae on it and arrows. It's very, very cool. I'm not sure what I quite imagine, but it seems very fitting with, with the type of work that you do. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's our brainstorming um, back of, um, which models we're working on at the moment. That's really um, cool. Results, yeah. Well, thank you for having me here today. I'm very excited to be here and talk to you. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> so when I was looking um, looking up some information on you, uh, one of the first things I stumbled upon was your profile page on the St. Michael's Hospital uh, website, which is the hospital that you're affiliated with. And I saw this sentence that really struck me, and it, I think it may be well, I, it was written by you, but it encapsulates what you do, and I thought maybe we could unpack it together to get a better sense of what you do every day. So the, the sentence is, our research focuses on answering questions about the biological, behavioral, and environmental mechanisms that underpin HIV and other STI epidemics in different geosocial contexts. So this is a really fascinating sentence. There's a lot of different parts to this, and it almost sounds magical, the fact that you can even investigate something like this. So I was wondering if you can maybe tell me a bit more about how you actually do this. If you have, I know you, you work in different parts of the world, if you have like a specific example that you could use to tell us a bit about it. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, um, a, a mouthful, a long <laughs> sentence, but um, the, m the main thing is that I think we're interested in, in looking at uh, what happens at a population level um, with epidemics, and, and we're focused on HIV and, and other sexually transmitted infections for the most part, and, and we're fa both fascinated by and um, trying to understand the mechanisms at the population level that sort of bring about onward spread and, and sort of challenge or, or barriers to um, the control efforts that you know are, are being put in place or, or that we're trying to put in place. Mm -hmm. And things are not mutually independent when it comes to um, how epidemics come about, how they persist, and, and how they can come under control. And, and that's where sort of the, there's biological components to that, right. behavioral and, and, and sort of systemic or structural. And we, we kind of just call that environmental, but it's, it's really, you know, the health system and, and sort of others, political factors and other things right. that create this ecology that enables sort of some of the biology and the behavior to interact and, and to allow for uh, a particular pathogen to sort of emerge and, and spread. Right. And, and so what I 
I love about the, the mathematical modeling is that you can kind of take pieces of that and try to understand some of those mechanisms mm-hmm. by testing it against the data that we have. Right. So you work with prior existing behavioral or biological and sort of structural data and you you feed it into a model that already pre-exists or then you then maybe try and test the model to to the data that you have? How, how does that work? So, so different features of it. So we, we develop the models based on sort of building on or modifying existing ones, sometimes developing new ones mm-hmm. if, um, if, if they just haven't been looked at or the mechanism of that hasn't really been looked at before. So we start from scratch with building upon sort of, you know, amazing theory and, and work that other people have done as, as we stand on the shoulders of the, of the giants <laughs> as always, you know, and, and we structure our models according to sort of the research question at hand. Um, and with respect to the data, I would say it's about maybe 50-50 at the beginning, sort of working largely with existing data mm-hmm. and then recognizing that it's not enough to say there are not enough data right. uh, to answer our questions. And so we work on collecting, quite a, especially the behavioral and biological data components. A lot of the structural sort of comes from uh, data that's existing within programs right. and health systems. But we work with a lot of great behavioral epidemiologists, social epidemiologists, um, social scientists, anthropologists to collect the kind of data that would just make our models better. We either feed them in or we um, calibrate or fit our model to that data, similar right. to how you would just, you know, statistical analysis, you sort of have your data parameters as, you know, variables as inputs, and then you have the outcomes of interest as well. And so we, we, we try to data come at, at, at it from both ends. Really cool. So from what I understand, with your output or your, your final results, I guess, you use that to maybe further optimize the mathematical models that you have, as well as maybe also working with local policymakers or people that work on the grounds to kind of maybe then educate different types of populations or just sort of spreading the yeah. knowledge. I would think of models as we do for any experimental framework. So really it's, you, know, you have a question and uh, a model can be an approach mm-hmm. with which to test that question and, and to answer uh, or to answer that question to test a hypothesis beyond that and, and that's all within the context of the theory that went into designing right. that model and, and the data that are available so it's really to sort of either explain and we do a, we, we like um, explaining or trying to understand sources of heterogeneity we're often asked to do predict work uh, yeah. and so we will but but I think what fascinates us the most is, is the explanatory part and and that is and, and the prediction part the explanatory part that can be either evaluation mm-hmm. or that can be um, looking at what could happen right um, if we tried this or didn't or or sometimes even just to try to understand why is it that despite everything we're doing <laughs> it's, it's not working what are sort of the mechanisms at play at a population level that we can try to model or simulate to see how much of that could explain why we're not seeing what we right. want to see. And, and that's, that's what we often work with, you know, knowledge users or, or end users, decision makers, whether they're community members, policy makers at the um, higher level versus uh, the ones who are actually at the front line right. um, making the decisions. <clears throat> and that's where we have the most fun are, are, are with folks at the front line and sort of iteratively testing things within the model and then sort of seeing how that plays out of course. Um, at the front lines. Yeah, that, that's kind of how it, that the process generally That's so works. cool. There's so many different parts to this. Um, so there, there's certain parts of the world where I think you work, where there's certain types of infectious diseases or um, STIs or HIV that have, where the epidemic has been around for a while. 
and I think it, the efforts to control it have been ongoing. So is there a difference between how you approach such an epidemic versus one that maybe just breaks out? Like, I know you're involved with the um, recent Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone. Um, yeah, I mean, there are themes that cut across how epidemics emerge and, and persist and, and, and evolve. And, and there are differences to sort of the initial period or, or outbreaks, right. um, we call them, rather than sustained epidemics or pandemics that are in, in some ways endemic. Yes. Uh, at some point and, and, you know, last for several years or, or longer. And, and so there are differences, both from an epidemiological perspective, definitely from a modeling perspective as well. Probably more commonalities mm-hmm. that, than differences, but I think where the big differences lie are sort of in the, the sociocultural response, the political response, and, and the empowerment of the community most affected by the particular infection. So I would say there are more differences at that level than there are probably are with the math that could be used to inform some of the work that around makes the sense. Yeah, I guess that that actually does quite make sense. And so you mentioned that you often will will collaborate with frontline workers. Do they provide you with certain types of insight that is useful? Stuff that you maybe didn't expect. Yeah, the, the program implementers, um, you know, the folks that both design, implement, um, evaluate, and sort of ongoing process of delivering services to those who um, experience the unmet need of, of the services that with respect to HIV, STI prevention or care. I think that, I mean, I learned so much from them. A large part of the work that we do comes from not just discussing sort of the ideas, but also what are sort of the questions that frontline workers and, and the frontline public health teams and program implementers really want answered. And, and many of those questions, you know, were not the, the modelers within us are not are not the best people to answer that. But we work within a larger team of program scientists who, you know, sort of work together to, mm-hmm. to answer that. And I'm not going to um, pretend that it's a, a perfect partnership. There's always ongoing conversation, work, right. um, reciprocation. But that's where I feel like the best work that we've done have come from questions that have come up right in the field. And yeah, maybe we go back and we sit on our computers and it takes months to, you know, to do more with it. But but that's really where the questions that I feel that we've answered that have made a difference come from. And, and certainly, absolutely, the policymakers and decision makers at other course, levels. Yeah. But I think the really cool stuff that's still pending to happen comes from the those that are you know, a colleague of mine calls it closest to the bedside, yeah, kind of, you know, and, of and it's not really the bedside in an epidemic or yeah. in a break, but, but sort of similar to that. Yeah. Well, I think often these frontline workers are, are individuals that have personal experience with the types of infectious disease that you're working on, right? So they might have some kind of intuitive understanding of what individuals that have this infection need, or also just like the social political atmosphere and yeah. how things work. Yeah, I mean, and lived experience represents sort of a, a spectrum yeah. of, uh, of what that actually means. And there's there's those that have been affected by or are living with um, HIV or mm-hmm. um, um, other STIs. There are those who care for yeah. um, persons. There are program implementers who mm-hmm. um, are working with communities. And, and this is true of, of anything, not, not just specific to HIV and STIs, but, you know, we found the same thing with our, our work on um, Ebola in Sierra Leone. It's not just sort of the... Um, the component of the lived experience with respect to just the infectious disease itself or, mm-hmm. or the um, infection itself, but rather sort of all of the downstream effects after and, and all of the vulnerabilities and sort of the, the social and structural issues that create ecology of vulnerability beforehand mm-hmm. that they can provide insight into, determine questions, formulate them, work together to 
a colleague of mine um, once called this sort of this democratization of knowledge, but I think, but it's really sort of the democratization of science. Yeah. When you kind of when you're working with not just people with lived experience and community members, but also frontline um, program implementers that are going to use the, the the science in a different way. I find that so inspirational, and I think we should really look to implement that kind of approach to science or philosophy to science and the sciences in general. And I feel like more and more we are, especially in big cities like Toronto, we're moving away from, you know, the sciences being like an old boys club where it was only accessible to very select few people, where now we're trying to engage more people and also getting people who work outside of the sciences to have their say in, in terms of what types of questions we should be answering and um, and how we should be doing things. Yeah. So that's really that's and, really cool. and seeing the the value in it beyond just that it's cool and, and but that it's it's worth investing in. It's, of it's worth the the potential for the opportunity costs mm-hmm. that goes into investing in it and that uh, whether it's immediate or whether it's 20, 30 years down the the line, the the new knowledge that's created um, means something to yeah. people. And and so I, I agree. I think there's been seeing this shift in sort of everything from science communication to public engagement to community, beyond community engagement, you know, sort of uh, real community discourse and so forth within science that, and certainly the the, the field of HIV has, has had a long history of, of, uh, of um, community-led and community-engaged science. I think in other fields, I'm starting to see that more. Um, I was, uh, was amazed um, to see how that that developed with some of the Ebola work, uh, particularly with Ebola survivors and communities affected by uh, Ebola virus disease. And so that's been pretty, yeah, awesome and inspirational. And I think we just learn a lot too. Absolutely. It's not such a top-down approach. No, no, of course. Hello, everyone. Jabir here, and I'm thrilled to bring you today's segment. You just heard Alex and Dr. Mishra talk about the importance of getting insights from the front line. And joining me today to share his lived experiences with HIV and his work as a community researcher is a colleague and collaborator of Dr. Mishra, Stephen Tingley. But before I introduce Stephen, I just want to let you, our listeners, know that Stephen and I are about to talk very openly about his experiences living with HIV. One of the first things that I'll ask of Stephen is to take us through his feelings and his thoughts as he first learned about his diagnosis. It's a very powerful story, and it's one where Stephen will reveal moments where he felt most vulnerable and how this impacted his mental health at the time. The following content deals with suicide and self-harm, which may be triggering to some listeners. Listeners, please be advised. On that note, welcome to Raw Talk, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for having me. So how do you know Dr. Mishra? Because she uh, connected us to, and she had mentioned you guys were colleagues and collaborators. I'd love to hear about those uh, first encounter stories. When I first went to Lee Cushing Building at St. Michael's, my desk was just roughly around her office there. She was just in the back row, I guess. And um, uh, just her energy around the hospital and what she does. And, you you know, uh, she actually flies all around the world and seeing other patients in other countries and stuff. And that's kind of inspiring to me. Like, um, when when I think of that, like, I, I couldn't imagine, like, flying around the world just to see other patients. Uh-huh. And you had mentioned just as we were setting up that at first you were a little shy because you were around a team of very uh, experienced professionals. Um, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I uh, I didn't know who to talk to if I had an issue with my computer or the printer or like <laughs> um, me being a community member and, you know, just... 
being on a totally different level than them, I kind of felt a little low on their scales, but uh, they they actually just pulled me right up to where to the level where, where they were at. For sure. Um, okay, and why don't we start off uh, with the day that you found out about your diagnosis, and just take us through what was going through your mind at that time, what you were thinking, what you were feeling. So when I found out back in Moncton in 2003, in March, uh, I brought a friend of mine to the sexual health center. And my partner was at home that day, and I didn't tell him I was going to get a test, and I was a little scared. And um, I got tested here in Toronto uh, just months prior, uh, because I used to live here before that. Uh, or before now and um, I got tested at the Evergreen Youth Shelter and they called me two weeks uh, later to get come in for the results and I just knew in my mind and my heart that they were going to tell me I'm HIV positive. So I moved back to New Brunswick um, two months afterwards. Uh, I called my parents they bought me a bus ticket and everything. I never told them what was going on. I just said I can't make it here in Toronto and basically i went back there i took a friend to the sexual health center got tested uh i went i found out my information a couple weeks later i went home had an argument with my partner at that time and i told him about it and he uh, he didn't have it but i had it so then uh when i went out for a walk later that night i actually ended up along the petty kodiak river by the chateau moncton hotel in moncton in moncton and i got on top of the bridge but i also had my pocket knife with me and i stabbed myself 17 times in the arm before i just decided i wanted to jump off I was just like, my partner doesn't want to be with me now, and no one else is going to understand, and this is what I'm feeling, and, you know, and, it, yeah, it just kind of came on as I was walking, and then I just, I, I was walking over the bridge, and I just thought, you know what, this is it, this is it. 20 minutes later, once I'm over on the other side of the bridge, I'm hang, hanging on the side, ready to jump off. The water's just flowing. It's muddy as could be. And next thing I know, I, I see flashing flashing lights, and I kind of look beside, beside me, and there's cops in the parking lot of the hotel and stuff. And next thing I know, I hear, Mr. Tingley, I uh, heard you're having a rough day. And I look behind me, there's no one there. I look to the other side, there, there's this officer there. And I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I guess you could say so. So he's like, well, did you want to have a cigarette and uh, calm your nerves a little bit? And I, I said, yeah, why not before I go? And uh, I went to go grab that cigarette and the officer quickly reacted and uh, cuffed me and um, pulled me up over. Saved you basically saved my life and i i couldn't tell you what his name was that that day but when he brought me to the moncton hospital uh i seen a psychiatrist and his name was dr bala and i'll never forget him because he he told me after 20 minutes that steven you're the most sane person i've seen here in last little while uh, I want you to take some nerve medication. Here's a prescription. Go home. Think of a goal. Complete that goal within one year. And that first year, uh, I opened up my first clothing store called Slurp Clothing on Main Street in Moncton. 
And then within the next four years, I ended up own, owning three three clothing stores and two nightclubs. And I couldn't imagine that I got to where I was uh, then, <laughs> you know, like, and it was the motivation that Dr. Bala actually put inside me and just telling me that, you know, if people are living longer with medication, you know, you could die of old age before dying of HIV. So that, that just really got to me, I guess. Um, so do you find even to this day that the words from the doctor still reverberate in your mind? Oh, I think about it every day, every single day, and that's what keeps me going. Yeah. And, um, well, let's talk about your health. Mm-hmm. Um, how long has it been since you've been diagnosed? It was 2003. Yeah. Right, so that makes it 14 years. 14 years, yes. So what do you attribute your ongoing health to? I'd love for you to dig into your health motivations um, and how that's changed over time. At that time, I wasn't on medication, but my CD4 count was still at six, six, seven, eight hundred. Um, and then my viral load was also still really good and stuff. So it, it was still a little impossible to transmit. Is it common that um, you can delay the onset of uh, treatment, so getting the antiretroviral treatment? I, actually, I tell you, I kind of wish I started treatment like instantly. Why do you say that? Well, just because a lot of doctors I've talked to said it can add years onto your life. Um, start, starting later on, um, it's, it, you could even become resistant to certain medications and stuff once it gets down too low and it doesn't really work as well. Um, so basically now they say, uh, if your CD, CD4 counts roughly around 500, you should start treatment right away. Yeah. And in terms of treatment, are you on an antiretroviral? Actually, I'm just on uh, the one pill a day, uh, a tripla, uh, basically after about three weeks, maybe four weeks after first taking them, my, uh, my CD4 account and my viral load all started shooting up. and um, So you were responsive to it? Yeah, and basically within the last year, my CD4 count sometimes went up past 1,142. Like, And what does that mean? That just means it's really good. <laughs> So, like, an average person is around 1,600 or a little higher or something like that, um, from what I understand. And then, um, uh, so anyone who does take medication, they're roughly between 700 and 900 is the the average. But I don't know. I guess mine just kind of shot up to 1,000, 1,142, and it fluctuated around there for a few months, and then it came down to 800, then it went back up. So so I guess it's just all in what you eat and how you take care of yourself. I, I guess it's just making me a little more healthier. You mentioned vulnerability j- just a little bit earlier, and I know that one of the populations that you work with specifically is uh, female sex workers, and I think you do this both in India as well as different parts of Africa as well. And that's a very unique and very vulnerable population to be working with, and I don't know too much about it, but I, th- I, I assume that up until recently it was they were probably quite neglected in terms of research. It's interesting. I, I um, and I'm not. I can't speak for female sex workers, um, and I don't. You of know, course. intent to no, no, this no. is not um, my my colleagues who I work with, who are peers who are, um, who are sex workers, are much better to speak to this. But but if I if I can within the form that we have here, um, suggest that actually vulnerable populations have been 
engaged, I wouldn't say engaged, have been included in research for a long time. Okay. So a lot of early work on HIV included female sex workers, okay. but not necessarily to the benefit of female sex workers ah, and, yes. and not and, and to sex workers and not necessarily to the type of engagement, the type of ongoing simultaneous discourse that, that maybe is happening now still to a level that isn't where we probably need to be. And certainly community colleagues um, would, would perhaps say that, but I, I can't speak you know, um, for that, but that's, that's my perception. I think that, um, so I, I wouldn't say neglected so much with mm-hmm. respect to this, the research. That's maybe not the right word. But, yeah. uh, but, but, but certainly not, not engaged um, as much as perhaps now. And at least my experience has been, and, and I've been very fortunate in that when I started doing research, right from the start, I was working with within an infrastructure within research groups that were fully embedded within, you know, community engaged um, research Perfect. and that and it was still evolving so when I say fully you know probably not fully but much more than what I had understood and read about before and, and much more than what I was probably exposed to while I was being when I was doing my medical training um, yeah I would say you know it, it's interesting we use the term sort of vulnerable and, and I think that's um, accurate with respect to thinking about you know risk of HIV acquisition mm-hmm. and STI acquisition and, and transmission and so forth um, but also um, you know quite empowered very knowledgeable um, of course, as well. So, so it's an interesting terminology that, um, that that we often use, and certainly applies to the mathematical model. Yeah. But with respect to what it means, sort of in a, in a wider scale. Um, of course. I think that the uh, um, sex work collectives and community organizations have a massive voice mm-hmm. in, uh, in in a lot of the HIV programs and policies now, and, and are strong advocates in, 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 in driving a lot of the policy change, a lot of the program change, That's great. and sort of bringing forth and facilitating and pushing scientists mm-hmm. to sort of answer questions that, mm-hmm. that um, would be most useful for actually controlling the HIV epidemic. I think when I, and I think I used the wrong word, but when I, when I use the word vulnerable, I meant more that up until recently, and maybe still in certain communities, there's a lot of stigma and taboo around uh, sex work. And so I guess it might still be different working with individuals who are part of those communities versus someone who has, for instance, you know, investigating individuals who have brain tumors, where there's a lot of, you almost can't remove the societal baggage. Yeah, and you're I, I vulnerable I, in that yeah. way. So it's like the yeah. training that you might need to give your students, for instance. I think that's what exactly, I'm trying to get Exactly, yeah. At. And I think this is true of sort of any health research. You can't remove the person from, from the, um, the the sample, yes, right, and yeah. um, and I, I would say this is true of um, you know there, there's particular health conditions that are associated with a lot more stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, there are vulnerabilities that are associated with stigma. There are identities that are you know um, associated highly stigmatized, and to which there are human rights violations, and, of and you know a lot a lot at play. Um, that, uh, that that goes beyond sort of just the sample mm-hmm. um, and, and the, the, the research and the study. And, and I think it's all sort of across a spectrum. I think that in patient care, I think we inadvertently stigmatize. Of and, course, um, yeah. Even if it's not an infectious disease and, and we sort of shame uh, at times mm-hmm. um, individuals who develop certain conditions. And I think there's a lot of sort of both internalized and externalized uh, stigma that, that happens across the spectrum for many things. Right. But, but particularly, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I've seen this with TB and I've seen with very much with the Ebola work as well mm-hmm. and it's very interesting sort of how stigma plays out I, I'm not a stigma researcher and there are people that are you know experts in this field that I think have sort of taught us a lot 
and still continue to, to work on this and to understand sort of the uh, the mechanisms that, right. that, um, that lead to this and, and how to address it. But I, I think as, as researchers and, and as uh, for our students and for all of us, I think it is very, in a very important part, whether it's through the training, especially I would say through mentorship, and that's where working with community researchers yes. has been very helpful, particularly for me, to sort of navigate that space and to to be thoughtful and um, reflect back on, you know, what are some of the things that I do yeah. as a researcher within this particular interaction and or the, 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 the language that I use in, in our papers and so forth that could contribute, however well-intentioned a person might be, to furthering some of the stigma and perpetuating some of the discrimination that the population we aim to serve um, actually continues to face. So I think this is where there's training. Um, and then I would say that the mentorship and working with community peers has really mm-hmm. helped with that. And, and that's something that I wouldn't say it's challenging when it comes to modeling. I would say that uh, it's uh, it's challenging when you try to just do the modeling in isolation for of that. Course. Um, yeah. but, but, but what has helped us is that we do that jointly with the social science and the uh, sorry the ethnography and the biobehavioral surveys and the modeling all together right. and this is where you know working with co- the colleagues I work with Dr. Marissa Becker and Rob Lorway and Jimmy Blanchard and others at the University of Manitoba have sort of always kind of worked together mm-hmm. and, and that has really helped me um, and, um, and has helped sort of the modeling learn from um, um, that's so cool a way in which you know, when you think about sort of just epidemic theory uh, in itself, we, we use terminology, like, you know, we, we use terms like somebody, um, you know, transmitted. And, and that's a very stigmatizing yeah. term. And then that's, it's actually inaccurate, you know, yeah. but, but within sort of um, uh, the, the pedagogical, you know, pedagogical mathematical modeling lingo or an equation, that's kind of what it looks like, exactly. right? But, but sort of how that's translated to and how that reflects uh, how a person um, interprets that and, and also how a society interprets mm-hmm. it and how policymakers and others and how that can continue to lead to stigma, comes stigma, back to stigma yeah. um, prejudice and, and biases that, you know, when, when you go back, you're like, actually, it's not. And this is where I think coming back to sort of thinking about um, the biological behavioral, so, uh, you know, structural plays in is because it's taking that um, sort of responsibility or blame for epidemics away from this idea of quote-unquote patient zero, which is a horrible, absolutely horrible term. And and I think um, for anyone of us who's ever sort of um, experienced um, or or lived with an infectious disease where we've ever been isolated or um, quarantined or, you know, all those things, I think, can really relate to that sense of not just the, the stigma, the guilt, the responsibility, the fear, you know. And, and Absolutely. So it's, it's sort of, I guess, to, to say back to what you were talking about, it's sort of you can't always separate the equations from no. the, the person. Another important theme that was covered by Alex and Dr. Mishra is the importance of language and how much that matters, especially in relation to um, terms associated with HIV. That can be stigmatizing. For example, transmission, eradication, contagious, infectious, undetectable. Perhaps you can kind of break down what these terms mean and why they could be so impactful in a negative way. I guess they have such an impact because, you know, you don't want to be th- thought of, the, of that way. Like trans- transmission, um, basically when people living with it that don't have HIV uh, hear that, it becomes so much stigma around that and you know they kind of back off a little bit mm-hmm. undetectable what does that mean undetectable e- equals untransmissible um basically uh, for me undetectable plus untransmissible equals hope 
and that actually gives me hope that I might live a normal life someday where you know my partner's not gonna be concerned around the HIV but you know be more concerned whether I'm gonna break up with them or not <laughs> <laughs> a lot of confidence out here that's good okay no that was awesome um well let's talk a bit about you know what's keeping you busy these days so you're leading a project on the transition of care for persons living with HIV mm-hmm. and a history of incarceration. So I read through a couple of your uh, presentations that you have available online, mm-hmm. and I was really struck by your description of um, the reasons that formerly incarcerated people don't seek out social and healthcare services, right? But before we get into those details, I really want to know what made you decide to lead a project like this? I guess it was just seven years of volunteering that really started getting to me. And as soon as St. Mike's offered uh, the job opportunity, I I jumped right on it. For those who are not familiar with this program, Mm -hmm. um, this research that you're doing, and what are a few highlights that you think would be useful, bits of information about this program that you want to kind of put out there? We have been meeting with some of the prisons, um, like Vanier, the uh, all-women's prison out in Milton. So, so like, um, I guess, like, throughout this program, we'll highlight uh, seven areas that actually affect ex-prisoners living with HIV, like housing, ODSP, peer support, uh, life skills, education and training, drug and alcohol treatment, and then also um, uh, there's a, there's always one that I forget. <laughs> when there's a list and you're trying to catch them all, uh, I think you had a lot to say about that. But, I mean, that's all I got, Steve. Um, any last uh, message you want to put forward? It could be about anything. Um, just... just Anyone that's living with HIV or anyone that knows someone that's living with HIV, just be supportive and also be proactive. Put yourself out there. Uh, I know a lot of people that ain't living with HIV that's working or volunteering in uh, AIDS Committee of Toronto or PWA or PASAN. Just put yourself out there. Learn all that you can learn. And also, I'd like to mention that uh, within the next two years, uh, I'll be finishing up my book called The True Stories of Stephen Tingley, The Life Outside the Compound. Well, look out for that. So where can people find you, get in touch with you if they want to stay connected? Yeah, um, if anyone wants to contact me, they can contact me at my email, Tingley, T-I-N-G-L-E-Y-S, at uh, St. Mike's Hospital, S-M-H dot C-A, or they can just look me up online, I guess. <laughs> For sure. Well, thank you so much for your time, Stephen. It's been an absolute pleasure. Not a problem. Thank you. So it sounds very much that you and your colleagues, a very multidisciplinary team and all over the world, you all work within a sort of a human rights framework where you're, you know, you're doing the science, but ultimately you are trying to push for better change for humans, whether that means eradication of certain infectious diseases, but also making sure that policymakers are well informed about what is driving these epidemics. And it's not some individuals going around, it's rather there's structural problems, biological problems, and that all of that feeds together to create the epidemic that we see on the news. Um, yeah, work, I think doing science within um, the human rights framework is is a cornerstone of, of working within HIV and STIs, but, but I would say particularly, it's within health research in general. And I, I think you, you, we cannot separate out the two. And I think the science is better, just like anything else, when uh, when it's informed 
within sort of the context of of human rights. And, and that I think that just actually helps make the science more clear rather than fuzzy where, where I think the biases that continue, the biases, the, the structural issues that continue to sort of shape the vulnerabilities that mm-hmm. people experience tend to make the, the science a bit more fuzzy. Absolutely, absolutely. Your passion for what you do is, is so evident from the way you speak about all of this. I was wondering, have you always been passionate about math and medicine? Or is this something, yeah, have you, did you always plan to become a, like both an infectious disease specialist physician, but also a mathematical modeler? Uh, no, I, um, um, I always loved math, and I did. Uh, um, and in my undergrad was uh, I was very fortunate to, to to have sort of studied across multiple fields and, and continued to sort of do mathematics until I. I um, but no, I, I went to medical school and did my residency and, and had every intention of being as, as good a, a doctor as I could be and, and focused on, on my clinical work. And it really, it wasn't until my infectious disease fellowship and, and I, was, uh, I was in India and, and, and just shortly before that, I had kind of heard about mathematical modeling from, mm-hmm. a, from a fantastic modeler at U of T, um, David Fisman. And um, when I was in India, I was sort of, I was working on clinical stuff and uh, fell into trying to understand more about the syphilis rates that we were seeing. Okay. One thing just led to another, and before I knew it, I was trying to understand the prevalence of syphilis from some secondary data and, and setting up a just a, a simple diagnostic right. study and uh, um, and happened upon uh, Marie-Claude Boilly, who became my PhD supervisor, coming to India and discussing some of the work that they were doing on evaluating a large-scale HIV prevention program through the use of mathematical models, particularly in the absence of having community randomized control trials to look at the impact of the evaluation and just hearing her talk about what she was doing and, and her and, and, and Michael Pickles who was working with her. It was uh, uh, it kind of sort of uh, lit a little bit of a fire under me. Yeah. And, and uh, before I knew it, I was in London meeting with her to discuss doing grad school and uh, just kind of nonstop uh, train <laughs> after that. Um, and again, and you know, did a master's because I wasn't, 100% sure if I wanted to do um, a PhD because this was a, a shift for me. Absolutely. Um, and, and then it was really kind of, you get a fire lit under you, but it's when you actually do it. And so for me, it was actually my when I worked on my first model, it was a syphilis model that I was like, this is, yeah, this I'm hooked. Is really this is what I want to do. Um, and, I, and I liked doing it and I yeah. liked finding out the answers and, you know, that the stuff that, um, the, the day-to-day stuff yeah. was, was fun. That's so good. Talk about keeping your doors open and not having your mindset on one single thing. Just like letting yeah. Yeah, letting yourself experience things, and then if you find something you love, then going for it. Yeah, I, I sort I call it uh, I sort of call medicine my first love, and then and and then um, mathematical modeling my second, and and, and you can have both. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, well, clearly, uh, yeah, um, yeah, and and so, I, and I think that's true of every, you know for for a, a lot of people uh, that kind of fall into things. It's uh, absolutely, but but then. As a, you know, I'm lucky enough to have um, been at a place in my life and, and with all the circumstances that sort of facilitate that, right? And it's not, possible. It's not possible for everybody, but uh, it, as, as a kind of a relatively compartmentalized person, it was nice to be able to sort of feel confident about one and, and, and then essentially um, start, uh, it, was, it was like starting a colleague of mine and I, we were talking about when we started our uh, grad school and particularly our PhD, that it was like starting internship over again. Or, <laughs> um, and uh, um, and uh, at that age, and, um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was great. But, yeah. but it, it's the same as some you know, people who do perhaps medicine or other fields after they do one field. It's, 
you kind of do start over again a bit a little bit in something new but at the same time you bring to it i think I knew what I wanted to get out Absolutely. of the science that I was, yeah. was, uh, I was trying to learn to yeah. do. And so now you spend your time being both an infectious disease physician here at St. Michael's Hospital, and then also you, you run your own lab. So yeah. you're combining yeah. both. Yeah. So, uh, so I get so to combine exciting. both, yeah. It, it, 50-50, it was not possible, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate and, and say that this research institute to be supported, particularly with the time and sort of, if I can give a plug out, this is of course, amazing. Yes. Uh, our institute is fantastic and, and our clinical group in terms of being able to, to, to manage both. It's a, it's it's not an easy balance, but uh, it's a privileged balance and I'm, and I'm lucky to keep at it. Absolutely. Is there, maybe to just sort of wrap it up, is there something that you're working towards right now that you're really excited, some kind of, beyond, you know, working towards better controlling various types of STIs or, or HIV? I, I think we'll continue to contribute to, to the global efforts to um, bring rates of HIV down and to, to provide better and, and more consistent care for mm-hmm. persons living with HIV um, and for STIs and, and other infectious uh, diseases. But I think we're a small, tiny, tiny cog in the wheel, you know, and, and so by and, and I'm sort of a tangible goal kind of excited person. I, I'm most excited about um, work that we're doing with the University of Manitoba group and our, our partners in Ukraine and Kenya looking at sex work venues as uh, versus um, intervention or program design mm-hmm. versus um, how people necessarily self-identify. So Rob Lorway and Marissa Becker um, have come up with this really you know interesting theory around the, the ecology of risk. And so we're doing some modeling. What would happen if we sort of stop defining people? Right whether self-defined or defined by, by programs mm-hmm. and, and, and frontline, you know, frontline public health uh, programs versus looking at sort of the, the spatial ecology that creates that the, the, the vulnerability that we experience and sort of taking away sort of that behavioral right. component to the programs that we sort of implement and, and what are the potential transmission impact of having programs sort of designed that way, particularly because the team is working on both phylogenetic as well as um, behavioral network data to try to tease apart be, what might not be well reflected in just asking individual behavioral questions to people but rather just looking at a macro picture and and designing programs that way so it's really kind of looking at that biological behavioral environmental and saying what 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 if we all all we knew about was more the environmental and could we have just as effective programs versus you know focusing in on individuals so it's um it's kind of reinventing things a little bit yeah a little bit yeah and 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 it you know it may not work but i'm I'm quite excited about it uh, about sort of looking at least at the modeling aspect of it and then going forward with some of the the data and evaluate in pilot programming so we were just talking about that yesterday that's why it's in my mind but it's kind of what we're working on sort of immediately now that's great and so if our listeners want to keep track of your progress or reach out to you is there anywhere they can reach you yeah, through our, uh, I guess, St. Mike's um, our website, our, our email address is there. And, Perfect. Uh, that, that's a good way to, to reach out. Yeah, of um, course. And c- keep an and eye visit out. visit our lab if they want. Yeah. Yeah, and keep an eye out for her papers as well. Uh, the team's papers, the particularly. Team's <laughs> <laughs> the team's papers, yeah. Okay, okay. Thank you so much for, once again, for this conversation. I had so much fun and learned a lot. It was wonderful talking to you. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Alex. <laughs> okay. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.
you know, I think as researchers, particularly those who work with communities, actually with anything, right? I think there's a lot of those of us privileged enough to sort of speak f- about um, shouldn't speak for. I something agree. Sense, you know, and I, I just want to make sure that that's... Um, I, I totally agree. And I think it's good to talk about, though, because we, that's the I thing, think and I think yeah. we don't... And to acknowledge, and I, I'm still learning that the best way to sort of learn is to sort of just have an opportunity to um, to have that discourse. And, yeah. But but it's uh, it's fascinating. So I was reading this thing about um, how, you know, because we often talk to, saying, oh, we're doing this because we're trying to, you know, give voice to and it's like well people are often not voiceless yeah they're, of course there's just they, they haven't had an opportunity mm-hmm. to, to speak and or um have been you know pressed to the point where they've been silenced and so i think just i think with the sex worker community very much have not and not not everybody but at least that the, the research infrastructure in india when i first went to work had that so it was very surprising to me when i worked in other things where that hasn't yeah. been the case well, like see, with to tb me, that's and very other things educational because i actually yeah. didn't know and so i'm sure a lot of our listeners yeah. would not know that necessarily too so yeah and, and I, w- I just wanted to be honest too yeah. you know i i didn't mean to suggest imply that you know your use of the term neglected was wrong but more no, no, no. i think it in fact brought out the sense of actually we've been doing research on yeah. you know um, no, and vulnerable populations and we've been necessarily like and, and translating yeah. it very much to, to yeah. other populations without it's, it's it's fascinating when you sort of think about the broad, like, you know, because we're kind of in our, like, you're in your yeah, lab and you're in your computer, and that's how I am too. And then I, um, not just myself, but our team, every time we go over and then we work, and it's always the anthropologist who make us, or the, the so, uh, sociologist <laughs> who make us sort of critically look at it and go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we have to, yeah, no, yeah. and that's so good. Yeah. And I, that's why I think, like, we should, I mean, obviously a lot of what you're saying is very uh, specific to your field, but I think the philosophy of, could be applied to anything. I think it any can. Any kind of science. Yeah. I think I think if uh, I think it can, and I think to be honest, I just I think we just need more social scientists. I agree. Work, working with us. I agree. On, on yeah, and, and teaching us and yeah, you know, language matters. Like, that language matters. Yeah, interact with people matters. And, and, and to, the way we think about our experiments, to think similarly critically about our interactions yeah. with, with people, and and also around the science communication, I think we could do so much better about convincing the public about the importance of, of what we're doing. Yeah.